Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that this summer is stressing the importance of being a good steward on the trail, finding ways to avoid contributing to crowding, and staying safe on public lands. We'll talk about how just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department encourages everyone to come out and experience state parks during its centennial season, the 100th anniversary of the state park system, especially through service projects listed online at stateparks.oregon.gov. It's a way to enjoy the parks you love while doing activities like cleaning up trails and restoring wetlands. All right, in today's show, we're going to talk about what is increasingly one of Oregon's most dangerous weather events the dreaded east winds, and the way it causes wildfires to ignite and blow up. We'll talk about what east winds actually means, where they come from, and why it has such a big impact on Oregon. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. Today, we're going to talk about two issues related to Oregon wildfires. In the first half of the show, we're going to talk about east winds and why this singular weather phenomenon has such a big impact on the state's wildfires. Now, east winds have been notorious for fueling and helping ignite many of Oregon's biggest wildfires, but over the past two years, that has been taken to a new level. A historically powerful east wind event two years ago fueled the 2020 Labor Day fires which resulted in nine deaths, thousands of homes lost, and over a million acres burned. And then this past weekend, another east wind event brought major power shutdowns to almost 50,000 Oregonians. It led to the growth and spread of major fires like the Cedar Creek Fire. And it also led to the ignition and spread of fires in Salem and Estacada that led to hundreds of people being evacuated from their homes. So given the rise in importance of east winds, we're going to talk with a fire meteorologist about what they are, why they're bad for fires, and whether they're becoming more common due to climate change. So that's the first item that we're going to hit. In the second part of the show, the tables are going to be turned a little bit, and I'm going to include an interview that I did last week on Oregon Public Broadcasting's Think Out Loud. So host Dave Miller was interviewing me about a recent investigative story that I published about how Two years after the Labor Day fires, final investigation reports into the causes of the fires have not yet been completed. Now, I wrote the story because there's a growing frustration from fire victims about the lack of answers about what ultimately ignited many of the fires and who should be held responsible. You can read my story on statesmanjournal.com, but Miller's interview captured a lot of what's in there. So we'll get to that in the second part of the show. But we're going to start with East Winds, and so here is the interview that I recorded on Monday. (music) 
All right, to talk about east winds, what they are, why they're such a problem for wildfires in Oregon, we're joined today by Eric Wise, a predictive services meteorologist who specializes in wildfire forecasting. Hi, Eric. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Zach. Okay, so we're going to mostly focus on east winds today, but I wanted to start out by asking you to kind of describe what you do. Is it mainly a job to predict wildfire weather conditions, or in, and who are you doing that for? So kind of Take me through your job just a little bit. Okay. I work at the Northwest Interagency Coordination Center, which is one of 10 geographic uh, coordination centers scattered around the country. And our primary uh, function is concerned with mobilizing resources to uh, manage wildfires. Now, we do sometimes get involved in other sorts of incidents like uh pandemic, we help mobilize resources for that. But primarily, we are involved with wildfire management. And as a predictive services meteorologist, my role is to assess the weather forecasts and compare that to the fuel conditions and fire history to make predictions about upcoming fire potential. Uh, my main customer is actually my manager here at the coordination center to make sure that they know where they can put resources, where they should not allow resources to move and so on, so that we've got things pre-staged as uh, new wildfires get on the landscape and better position us to uh, control those fires. Okay. What are the sort of different factors you're looking at to create those forecasts to, you know, think about where, what resources need to go where? So what, like, when you're trying to determine the season, like, what factors do you take into account? Yeah, making those uh, long-term outlooks is always challenging. Um, primarily, we're looking at things like what the drought conditions are, um, what sort of fuel loadings out there based on the uh, amount of precipitation and, and growing season we had the previous year. And then also we are leaning very heavily on the Climate Prediction Center's um, outlooks for temperature and precipitation anomalies. So we try to align all those things up and then using the, the history of fire in the area, try to assess, you know, what are those conditions looking like for the upcoming season. Gotcha. But as you go through the year, you know, as, as we get into summer and stuff, you're kind of continually looking at, at conditions and advising, you know, wildfire managers saying, hey, we're seeing, you know, a lot of lightning strikes over here and it's pretty dry. You might want to go there. Is that kind of the way it goes? Yeah, absolutely. And we update our, our outlooks every month as well. So we try to keep that forward looking uh, projection updated as well as giving more near term uh, forecasts of the light that you mentioned. If we see a lot of thunderstorms coming towards an area, we may recommend pre-positioning some teams and equipment uh, to be able to respond quickly. Um, if the firefighters can get to those, especially lightning ignitions before they get big, we uh, can keep things under control a lot better. So it is helpful to have the resources where they are needed. All right. Well, so as I mentioned at the top, the main reason I wanted to have you on today is to talk about east winds. Now, Fire folks have known and talked about them for a really long time, but between the Labor Day fires uh, two years ago and then this past weekend, which you could almost describe as Labor Day lights, uh, I think everyday Oregonians are starting to become aware of east winds as being bad for wildfires. So in simple terms, what are east winds uh, when we're referring to Oregon? Where do they come from and how do they form? Okay, so in this area, our winds predominantly come from the west. So the winds are coming over the ocean and then come onto the air or onto the landmass. So they tend to be a little bit moister. 
East winds, on the other hand, are blowing from the continental air mass that's drier. So they start out drier and then blow into the region and become even drier. Um, the east winds form as a result of a difference between high pressure to the east of us and low pressure either, either over us or to the west of us. Um, the winds want to go from the high pressure into the low pressure and then as they get pushed up over the cascades, um, they tend to try to precipitate out any moisture that's in the clouds. So as they're being forced up, the uh, water vapor condenses and then can precipitate. Um, both the condensation and precipitation tend to add heat to the, uh, the air that's around them. So those uh, winds actually get hotter as the precipitation occurs when they're on their way up the east side of the mountains. And then as those winds start coming down the west side, um, as the pressure increases going down to lower elevations, that pressure adds temperature to the, uh, the air. So the winds start out dry, they can tend to dry out more as they go upslope, and then as they come down, they dry out even further. So they tend to desiccate the uh, fuels ahead of them as that hot, dry wind comes down the uh, west slopes of the Cascades. Yeah, and so why are east winds such a problem for wildfires, both for existing fires like the, the Cedar Creek fire that's, that, you know, was hit by those east winds and definitely kind of blew up and then creating new ones like the one in, in South Salem this past weekend. Why does those combinations of factors that you describe tend to tend to do that? Yeah, for us, the east winds are a form of fern winds, which is a German word, but um it refers to downslope winds, and these winds happen all over the world, often using different names. We've all heard of the Diablo winds and Santa Ana winds, but all over the world, they have different names for these. Up here, they can be called Chinook winds or Chetco winds, but the uh, main characterization of fern winds is that they are downslope winds. Um, so they do warm and dry as that wind comes down in elevation and it dries out those fuels ahead of them and heats up the air. So everything's a little preheated. So any sort of uh, ignition is going to be uh, promoted into a fire just by those uh, hot and dry conditions and the winds that tend to get channeled through the terrain. Um, so a conflagration of things with hot dry fuels and hot dry winds blowing on those fuels tends to blow things up gotcha so it, i mean is it is the is a good analogy kind of a, a hot like blast furnace like on 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 a flame like just it's not only like a big wind but it's a hot and dry wind it's drying out the conditions and so all of that almost makes it sort of perfect for spreading wildfire like it's almost a perfect storm for that correct yeah, exactly. Um, we've got preheated fuels and preheated air blowing into the thing. So it's exactly like you said, like blowing a blast furnace at something. And these uh, downslope winds can really get quite warm and have some pretty devastating effects. Um, you know, Blackfeet Indian used to call them snow eaters because they could melt off all the snowpack in a matter of a few hours. Do east winds always result in wildfires or do they sometimes just pass us without knowing it. I mean, when we talk about like last weekend, we talk about the Labor Day fires, like it was, it was clearly an event, you know, we were kind of warned about it. We were watching out for us, but do East winds just sometimes pass through Oregon, you know, unnoticed if it's a little wetter outside? Oh yeah, they, they happen. And, and throughout the fire season, we can get a thermal trough that gets built up, which is basically the heat of the ground, creating a low pressure system 
that's fairly localized, and those form on the uh, along the coast of Oregon and and down through the Willamette Valley pretty frequently during the summer. And because it's an area of low pressure, it can draw some easterly winds down into it. So we get that happening pretty regularly throughout the fire season, but those winds tend to be fairly light. Um, the folks out working on those uh, fires that are on the landscape are certainly aware of it because it does dry things out and it tends to extend the burning period. But for most folks, uh, those minor east wind events go pretty much unnoticed. Mm. Well, when do when does it reach a point where we are going to notice? <laughs> um, I mean, what combination of factors does it have to be a, a strong enough east wind event for us to really take note of it the way we did last weekend? Does it have to be a certain time of year? Uh, what turns it from kind of like something few people would notice to something that, you know, might shut down power for 40,000 people? Yeah, it's, I think, exactly what you said. Once the winds get to a certain level is when we become concerned. Um, and then there has to be at least a little bit of a duration with it as well. Um, with an event like what we just went through, you could see it in the weather models a few days in advance that we were going to get some high pressure off to the east of us, and it was going to push those winds through. Um, so we, we do see those coming, and, and it tends to happen most often in September and early October. So there is sort of a calendar uh, that you can set on um, because that's when we would expect the conditions to start developing those east winds events. Is there any reason that they tend to show up the stronger east winds, that they tend to show up around, you know, Labor Day, for lack of a better term, being, you know, early September? Like, is there something going on that, that causes them that time of year? Yeah, I think it's just a change in the seasonal weather patterns. So as we start to switch from summer patterns to fall patterns, then we can tend to get those stronger high pressure systems setting up uh, over the Great Basin and Northern Rockies that generate our easterly winds. All right. Well, obviously the the Labor Day fires. So uh, two years ago, 2020 Labor Day fires, they were kind of for lack of a better term, the gold standards for east winds, as far as what I remember in terms of power and impact. Can you talk about what happened there and how that event two years ago sort of ranked historically in these east wind blowups? Sure. Um, what happened that year is we got very high pressure developing over Idaho and a little bit into eastern Oregon. And with that very high pressure, it forced some strong winds to come over the uh, Cascades and out to the coast. Now, coincidental with that, we had a pretty strong thermal trough right along the Oregon coast. We had quite low pressure on the coast and, and pretty high pressure inland that, that generated those winds. The uh, 2020 Labor Day event was the worst uh, easterly wind event on record. And we saw winds at the 950 millibar level. So the first level up that the uh, balloons measure above the surface were the highest ever recorded in Salem. So that definitely was uh, that event stands head and shoulders above all the other east wind events on record. Whereas the conditions over this last weekend were much more restrained in comparison, but more comparable to perhaps the uh, East Winds event we had in 2017 when the Eagle Creek fire kind of got blown around. Well, let's let, let's jump into what happened then last weekend. You know, I kind of described it as Labor Day lights, um, but you know, what wind speeds were we seeing during this event? Uh, you know, and then again, kind of comparing to uh, uh, Labor Day 2020. 
you know, what we saw with this last weekend's event was really more gusts that were getting into the, you know, 30 to 35 mile an hour range. But uh, back in 2020, the sustained winds were above that level. So this year was quite a bit lighter in comparison, but still obviously enough to cause some flare-ups on Cedar Creek fire. But again, those winds were quite light in comparison to what happened in 2020, and they lasted for basically about a day and a half as opposed to three or four days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but even so, I mean, uh, there was one in Salem that sparked and grew pretty fast and threatened homes pretty quick. So it had a pretty big impact in addition to power companies being worried and, and shutting things down, um, you know, just so that there wasn't any spark. So, I mean, with these east wind events, it just it doesn't seem to take much uh to to get something going is is that is that generally true once you reach these wind speeds or gusts up to like 30 like where it's just like if you light a match too close to like a tree like it's gonna (laughs) it's gonna get going like is that what we tend to see when the wind speeds reach a certain level um yeah as long as you've got the uh, the dry conditions preceding the winds that's exactly what we're seeing is you know you've got conditions that are already receptive to fire and then you start blowing hot winds all over it it definitely will blow things up Mm. and then as you noted the other concern is those winds can start uh, causing sparks from power lines or knocking power lines down knocking trees into the power lines and so yeah the strength of the winds can also result in initiation of new fires so east winds have a long history in Oregon. It's it's kind of interesting to go back and, you know, look at a study from, you know, the 1950s where they're talking about, you know, these dreaded east winds and how they led to the blow up of like the Tillamook burn in 1933. And then Oregon's deadliest wildfire, the Bandon fire of 1936, was also blamed on east winds. So it seems to be kind of all about, you know, when they hit, how long they are and how powerful, but this is the East winds have been around for a long time, correct? Oh, absolutely. This is not a new phenomena. Um, you know, East winds were recognized as a fire problem in this region, at least as early as 1914. Uh, there was a paper done by an Edward Beals that was actually studying the great fire of 1910, which was over in uh, Idaho and Montana. Um, but that fire, you know, ended up burning 3 million acres and killed 87 people. Um, And as he was studying that, he called out that east winds were uh, the the genesis of all of that fire activity coming off of the the northern Rockies in that case. Mm -hmm. But so, yeah, it's definitely been known about uh, ever since uh, they started researching what caused uh, wildfire behavior and started tying it to the weather conditions. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned earlier the 2017 Eagle Creek fire run in the gorge. And, you know, I think you you mentioned that that was similar to the kind of event that we just saw last weekend. Um, I, but it doesn't feel like people have kind of put two and two together, at least not for the average person uh, in, until recently. Has has I mean, has the the Eagle Creek fire, the B&B complex, the Chetco Bar fire. I mean, those are all east wind driven, correct? And I mean, does does Oregon even have big growth on wildfires when east winds aren't involved? Like, is that kind of the the recipe for just about all of them at this point? Yeah, we, we can get big growth on fires without east winds, but that tends to happen more on the east side out in the rangelands where just any wind in any direction can really blow fires around in, in dry grass and so on. But on the west side, it's uh, pretty rare that we get uh, any sort of a, a significant fire without east winds. And I noticed uh, Cliff Mass had a 
a suggestion that perhaps all major fires on the west slopes of the Cascades are related to east winds. And I can't fact check to fact checked his his research, but uh, he's a pretty sharp guy. So um, I think we still do get some some big fires, but it's exceedingly rare on the west side unless we have those east winds pushing them. So, you know, you mentioned climate change just a little bit ago, and I kind of wanted to ask was it are those two different things? In other words, is there evidence that climate change is making the east winds themselves either more common or more powerful in and of themselves? Um, I, I think there's no direct research that suggests that the uh, climate change is going to increase either the likelihood, frequency, or strength of east winds events. Um, I think where climate change does come into play, however, is that, uh, you know, the uh, warmer and drier conditions are increasing the frequency and strength of drought conditions that get into the area. So with drier conditions on the ground, we could see amplified impacts from any sort of east winds events. Gotcha. So in a sense, uh, climate change is sort of setting the stage um, for if any east winds come through, it's gonna it has a greater impact because it's dry to begin with. Then it dries out even more, and so you just have kind of a tinderbox situation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, anything else people should know? I mean, we've had two of these east wind events, uh, you know, two years from each other. I think it's shaken people up a little bit. I know people are definitely on edge during the recent one. It's you know led to some power shutoffs, which has a big impact statewide. So, I mean, what would you say to people who are jittery and, and feel like, oh man, is this the new normal? Is this going to happen all the time? Yeah, I think I would first not characterize it as the new normal as as we've noted earlier that, you know, we've always had issues with east winds and causing fire behavior problems in Oregon. Um, the good news is that these east winds events are, are pretty well predicted by weather models these days. So we usually know about them uh, at least several days in advance. And with that better predictability, um, the utility companies have a better chance to be positioned to de-energize lines before those lines can be uh, damaged and cause additional fires. And we uh, certainly deal with impacts from power outages, um, but the impact of having power out for a few hours is certainly a lot better than having extreme wildfire events blowing through the area. Yeah, it was interesting this time around how, you know, Oregon as a whole, like not just utilities, you know, not just firefighters, but just people as a whole heard the word east winds are coming and they're going to come now. And it was almost like everyone like ratcheted up into action. People were very wary and on their game. It was just a lot different than 2020, which, as you mentioned, was way worse. But, you know, it was Labor Day weekend. Hardly anybody was paying attention. It seemed to catch us by surprise last time. And this time it did not feel like the case. Yeah, I think the 2020 event certainly uh, woke a lot of people up to the, the potential for east winds to be problematic. To include folks here in the uh, the coordination center, we are more in tune. And and honestly, when I started seeing this last weekend's winds predicted about a week in advance, I didn't mention it for a while, hoping the models would change their minds because <laughs> I didn't want to freak out everybody that heard me mention it. So once we were sure it was coming, we started messaging it and getting the word out and did talk with some of the utility companies, you know, several days in advance as they were starting to uh, plan for the, the uh, need to turn off the power where needed. Yeah. And I guess, in that, you know, if there's a blessing in the skies, it seemed like the 2020 event definitely like 
woke us up to that reality of like the worst case scenario, like this can happen. So what can we do to prevent that from happening? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it probably helps people with realizing that, you know, going without power for a few hours might be a pretty good solution. (laughs) All right. Okay. Well, we've been talking with Eric Wise. He's a predictive services meteorologist who specializes in wildfires. Thanks, Eric. This has been really helpful. All right. Thanks, Zach. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we'll have me talking about the Labor Day fire investigations, or lack thereof, on Think Out Loud with host Dave Miller. I'm Sarah Gafori with American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. I moved to Oregon because of my love for the outdoors. It also inspired me to go to law school and pursue a career in environmental law. At AFRC, I have the pleasure of advocating for science-based forest management throughout the West. Protecting our public lands helps achieve important conservation goals, including clean air, clean water, and robust wildlife habitat. It also helps provide renewable, climate-friendly wood products that we all depend on. We strongly believe that active management of our public lands is the right thing to do for the environment, for the economy, and for our future. Learn more about AFRC at amforest.org. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. The last two years have been tough on the beaches and trails of the Tillamook Coast. With more people flocking to the area in search of outdoor activities comes a spike in the appearance of trash along roads, trails, and beaches. Be part of the solution and make a point at helping curb this problem. Dispose of your trash in designated receptacles and practice leave no trace visitation. Make it a habit to bring a trash bag along in your hike or beach walk and pick up at least three pieces of trash along your way. It may seem like a drop in the bucket, but every little bit makes a difference. Learn more about how you can help by visiting www.tillamookcoast.com and downloading the Tillamook Coast Pledge. You can help preserve the legacy of beautiful trails and beaches for generations to come. Okay, so here's the interview I did with Dave Miller on OPB's Think Out Loud. Again, if you want to read the full story, there are a lot more details, and it's definitely laid out in a more precise manner, and you can find that at statesmanjournal.com. But this interview gives you a pretty good idea of what's in the story and why it matters. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. It's been two years now since the deadly Labor Day fires in the Santiam Canyon and in southern Oregon. Two years for fire survivors to try to recover and rebuild. They also want answers and accountability, a clear picture of what went wrong, of who or what caused the fires. But the official investigations by the U.S. Forest Service, the Oregon Department of Forestry, the Ashland Police Department, and various counties still have not been completed. Zach Ernest wrote about this delay for the Statesman Journal, and he joins us now. Zach, welcome back. 
Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for joining us. What exactly do investigators look into when they're working on one of these post-fire investigations? Boy, I mean, they look at so many different things. Um, one of the things that we know about the Labor Day fires that's that's fairly clear is that, you know, the fires were spread rapidly by this historic east wind event. You know, I think it was the highest wind speeds they've ever seen for September. These east winds, they're synonymous with Oregon wildfires, you know, growing rapidly. And that's throughout history. So we know the east winds were a huge part of it. The thing that they're looking at is what ignited those fires. In some cases, that's obvious. There was fires on the landscape, like the Beachy Creek fire, the Lion's Head fire. But in other cases, the fires sparked, you know, and maybe it was down power lines, maybe it was a person. And so what the investigations do is comb through that in a very scientific way. And they produce these final investigation reports that you know, lay out exactly what happened. And then if somebody is to blame, and in those cases, they can bring charges, criminal charges in some cases, it, you know, they might be recouping firefighting costs. And so it's it has to be a very detailed investigation, the who, what, where, when, why, everything laid out scientifically. What do we already know? I mean, for example, what have agencies like the U.S. Forest Service said in the immediate aftermath of the fires? I mean, so basically, what did they say two years ago about what they thought happened? So I remember the day after the wildfires blew up, you know, when everything was chaos, when everybody was evacuating, the skies were black. I talked to the Forest Service about the San Ann Canyon fires, and they definitely said, hey, it was down power lines. Power lines came down. They ignited these blazes. They got whipped up. And... You know, that was a big part of what caused the impact in the Sanium Canyon. Now, we know at the same time that the active wildfires that were already happening also blew up. And so, you know, in a lot of cases, agencies have kind of hinted at things. They've explicitly said things about the cause of them. But then re more recently, they've kind of, you know, shut that down because they've said it's an ongoing investigation. We can't talk about it. So it's a weird dynamic where reporters have, like, reported a lot of the causes but they will not say officially exactly what happened, if, if that makes sense. You talked to a number of residents in the Santiam Canyon um, who said that in talking about those downed power lines, in implicating Pacific Power, U.S. Forest Service officials were just shifting blame away from their own mistakes. What's this argument? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really complicated. And for for context, what they're attempting to accomplish in the Sanium Canyon is extremely complicated because you have three fire events, at least. You have the active Beachy Creek fire that was in the Opal Creek. You have the Lion's Head fire that was around Mount Jefferson. Both of those fires unquestionably blew up in ways that we've rarely seen in Oregon. At the same time, there were many reports of downed power lines igniting small spot fires and those are being the ones that impacted homes, you know, and, and so it's this mishmash of fire altogether. Now, what I'm talking about there was I've written extensively about the volunteer firefighters of Mill City. Um, and they were the only ones that stayed all night, all Labor Day nights, uh, fighting the fires. In fact, they're credited with largely preventing the fires from doing a lot more damage to Mill City. And they have maintained since the beginning, really, that it was the original Beachy Creek fire that, that came over the hill that spread embers and that that's what ignited the spot fires. You have other people who say, hey, I saw the power lines come down. So you have this very complicated situation where, you know, you can't interview the fire and say, did you come from the original fire? Did you come from power lines? And so that's what investigators are piecing together. I talked to, you know, professional investigators said that's 
probably as tough as it get, gets is when you have multiple fires overlapping and trying to figure out the ignition points of all of them. One of the issues that confuses me in terms of the way I, I think about um, an investigation that people are going to have faith in is, in, in this case, you have some people you were just outlining who, who, who see um, mistakes made. Um, by the U.S. Forest Service, but it's the Forest Service itself that is in charge of some of these biggest investigations. Are they essentially, or at least in part, investigating their own actions? They they are, in part. Um, I would stress that in the Sanium Canyon, again, just because that's where I focused a lot of the attention, it is the Oregon Department of Forestry that is investigating what they'll call ignitions. So ignitions during the Labor Day event, during the big wind events. So it's the Department of Forestry doing that. It's the US Forest Service that is investigating the spread of the original fire, which originated on federal lands. It's a tangled web, uh, no doubt. And it would it certainly led to a certain amount of cynicism um, and this feeling that the agencies are screwed up and they're trying to sweep it under the rug. That's definitely that sentiment out there. Um, you know, the agents was saying we're doing an impartial science-based investigation, um, and it takes a while. So let's turn to that question about a while, because you also note in your new article that investigations into the deadlier California wildfires, such as the Camp and the Dixie fires, those were completed in about a year. We are now at the two-year point um, for the Oregon's Labor Day fires. How have the Oregon Department of Forestry or the U.S. Forest Service explain just the timeline explained how long this is taking i mean the forest service hasn't said much um they they've been kind of just said it's it's an ongoing investigation we it, we're investigating all these causes it'll be done when it's done um the department of forestry has you know definitely said we get that it's been a long time there was a lot of fires happening. i mean we're talking about 10 different major wildfires all kind of happening at once it's a lot for an agency i did compare it to cal fire you know the california um, you know, firefighting agency, they do typically get these done a little bit quicker, you know, a year, a year and a half is what I was told was average for a com complex investigation. I would probably say California has more resources, more investigators uh, on staff than the Department of Forestry. So, you know, I'd, but going over 10, not having any investigations to look at at this point, it's definitely been a source of frustration for a number of people from, you know, lawyers to uh, victims to firefighters just saying, hey, you know, come on. You mentioned lawyers there. What is the connection between the existing civil suits that have been filed on behalf of thousands of people at this point and the investigations that haven't yet been released? Well, I mean, for lawyers, if you're trying to build, you know, a case or you're trying to defend yourself against a case, these final investigation reports are going to be the best piece of evidence that you have. And so, you know, if you're trying to make a case against Pacific Power saying they were negligent, you know, they didn't shut down power, they should have, you know, you kind of need these final investigation reports to, to back that up, to take in front of a jury. On the same token, you know, what, you know, if you if you take the CAL FIRE, you know, they brought charges against, um, you know, a utility for igniting like the fire that burned down Paradise. They eventually filed criminal charges for involuntary manslaughter in that case. And they say, you know, you got to take it in front of a jury. You have to prove a high bar. And so it's that, you know, it's like the best example of of what happened, the most scientific, most rigorous 
thing is why it's important to ongoing legal, you know, issues. Hmm. So those are the legal questions, but there's also just the issue of some kind of closure. I'm curious what you heard from residents and property owners, fire survivors, especially in the Santiam Canyon, which, you know, which is where you focused. But people have been waiting for this report or these reports just as, as one more way for them to feel like they can move on with their lives. Yeah, I mean, I definitely heard that. The word I heard a lot was accountability. You know, we want somebody to explain, you know, a lot of people feel like they know what happened. You know, it's been two years. A lot of people have kind of made up their minds about the cause, but it's it's accountability. It's saying, hey, if, if something went wrong, like we want you to say, hey, we kind of screwed up. We could do this better. And especially moving forward, you know, it's been two years later. And the thing I kept hearing was, you know, not that much has changed. We need this investigation to say, here's what happened, here's what we can do better so that when this happens the next time, we're much better prepared. We're better prepared for evacuations. Maybe we're more aggressive in fighting the original fire. All those different things come together, but to move forward, they want they want progress and they haven't seen that. Zach Ernest, thanks. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Zach Ernest is the Outdoors Editor for the Statesman Journal and the host of the Explore Oregon podcast. All right, well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com slash explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.